to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today we're joined by Anne Eady. Many of you already know Anne. She is the other half of Panda the Miniature, who is a guide horse. She is Panda's person. But today we're not going to be talking about Panda. Well, we may talk a little bit about Panda. But we're primarily not talking about Panda and guide work. Today I've invited Anne to join us to talk about her big horses and to talk about riding. It's going to be fun to bring the big horses in since we talk so much about about Panda. It's only fair that they should also get to play a part in the podcast. But what prompted this podcast was an email I had a couple weeks ago from one of the participants in the online clinics. And she was asking the question of, basically, she was asking, do clicker trainers ride? Which I thought was a very odd question, since I've written a book about riding with a clicker, and I have the DVDs on riding, and I have the online clinics. They are there are eight clinics, and they are designed to sort of follow the thread from introducing your horse to clicker training through the groundwork to riding. And so riding is for me very much a part of clicker training. But she was she was saying that in the area that where she lives, she knows of other clicker trainers and none of them ride. That they have all struggled with, it sounds like some of them have struggled with figuring out how to ride with positive reinforcement and none of them ride. And so she was wondering, you know, is it something about positive reinforcement that doesn't work with riding or is it just too complex or or, you know, what's going on that she's not seeing more people ride. And I, again, I just had to sort of scratch my head and think of all the people who I work with and where we are definitely working directly with riding. And in September, we had dressage camp where we were following that thread of the groundwork to the riding. And Michaela Hempen joined us and shared the work that she's doing with Blondie. And then we had Anya Barron join us. And Anya's not a positive reinforcement trainer, but what she was able to emphasize with people is, is that good riding, the use of, of gymnastic exercises, helps horses to become sound and to remain sound. And the, the thread that we follow is very much into the gymnastic exercises of classical dressage. And so I was thinking, you know, I really, we should do a podcast that's about riding. Who should I invite? Who would be a good person? And we've, we've had a number of episodes recently with Michaela, and I thought, no, I need a different voice. I need somebody else to come and talk to us about riding. And, and so I was thinking about all the, the people over the years who I've worked with um, and where we've developed just beautiful, beautiful teams for under saddle. And then I thought, well, of course, I know the perfect person to invite. I'm going to ask Anne if she would like to join us and talk to us 
about Magnet, her Arabian, and about uh, the Icelandics. And so that's what we're going to do today. So, Anne, would you, how should we begin? I think we need to introduce Magnet. That would be a good place. Do you want to do the, the honors on introducing Mag? Uh, sure. <laughs> Magnet. <laughs> well, I think you have always summed Magnet up by saying that he is a one in 10 million horse. Yep. Sometimes we go even higher ratio than that. <laughs> uh, but uh, he was my first love uh, as a, a horse that I had a um, long-term relationship with. And when I met him, he was middle, middle-aged yep. in his mid-teens. So maybe, maybe I should jump in. And I threw this to you, but maybe I should jump in and start Magnet's story because his story really began with, with me before he became your horse. So he belonged to a couple out in the Midwest, and he was started as a reigning horse. I would love to meet the trainer who started him. I have no idea, no idea who started him. But whoever did, did a beautiful job. He clearly had a really good start under saddle. And he belonged to a couple. He was the husband's horse. They were getting divorced. And his wife, as part of the divorce settlement, he had to sell the horses. So he had to sell his favorite horse, who was Magnet. And a couple of his, his business associates, who were my clients, were visiting at the time. And they fell in love with Magnet, bought Magnet from him and brought him out to uh, Massachusetts. They were an interesting couple. They lived down in New York City, and they weekended up in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. And on the weekends, they liked to go out. Well, the husband liked to go out trail riding. His wife would have preferred to stay in an arena, working slowly at the walk. But to humor him, she would also go trail riding with him and he was one of those riders who would uh, like to get on a horse and just go fast. <laughs> and yes, I saw the eye roll, Dominique. So his idea <laughs> of a fun ride was to, um, to go fast. And he liked, you know, 20 mile trail ride up into the mountains going fast. But the, he, he was a big man. And the struggle that they had was finding horses who were strong enough to carry him. And the horses that they had, that they started out with, were not appropriate. His, his wife's horse was uh, a gated horse who she was leasing. And the owner of that horse, her idea of a fun ride, she liked an adrenaline rush. And so a ride was not a good ride unless she saw her life flashing before her at least once or twice during the ride. <laughs> and so she would lease this to this beginner, timid rider, this horse who was very scary. It was, it was an interesting, it was an interesting um, challenge. Uh, this, and the, the horses, the, their other horses were really not strong enough for the kind of riding that the husband wanted to do. And so that's when I started to explore Icelandics. I introduced them to Icelandics. That was fun. We went down to a farm south of us. The, the owners of the farm 
imported and bred and sold Icelandics. And he um, basically to shut me up and sh shut his wife up uh, about our, we kept saying how wonderful Icelandics were and we should all be looking at Icelandics. And he was a big man and he said, you're not going to get me on Icelandics. I'm not going to ride Icelandics. And so to humor us, he went down to this farm and took a ride on an Icelandic. And three hours later, they pried him off these horses because he was just so bowled over by them. And he called his wife up out of a business meeting and had her come and ride them. And that evening I got a, a phone call from him and it was one of those on those cell phones where you can barely hear and make out what, what they're talking about. And he said, we're through messing around. Like, what does that mean? Oh no, what have I done? And he said, we've had, we've had a, a, a religious conversion. <laughs> oh no, oh no. And he said, we've ridden Icelandics. And within, within two weeks, they, they owned two Icelandics and then they got more Icelandics. So they, they were, they were the, the entry point for the Icelandics and really getting to know Icelandics better. In the meantime, they had gone out west and bought Magnet. And when they brought him back, I rode him within a couple of days of Magnet, Magnet's arrival at the barn. And normally when I ride other people's horses, I don't covet them. You know, I'm, I, I'm good about saying this is a lovely, wonderful horse, but I don't need to own this horse. Well, I coveted Magnet. He fit me like a glove. I mean, it was just such a really amazing match and fit. And he just, I just fell in love with him. But he wasn't the horse that I ended up spending time with when I visited them, when I was working with them. He was the guest horse. So I didn't really do anything with him. I worked with the husband and wife with the horses that they rode regularly. And on weekends, they would have company come up, and the company would ride Magnet. And I began to hear Magnet horror stories, that Magnet, he was scaring the beginner riders. He was bolting off even with the experienced riders. And Magnet just could not cope with having the husband get on a horse and just leave at speed, that he had to leave at speed as well, which was okay if you were an experienced rider, but not so good if you weren't. And then the experienced riders were getting on and they could, they, they could feel the training that Magnet had in him. So they were trying, you know, they were doing spins and they were doing lead mm. changes and so on. And they were just sort of ripping all the training out. And, and so I started to hear these Magnet horror stories. And then I heard that he had fallen out on the trail and, and he was starting to be that horse that nobody wanted to ride and he was left in the pasture when everybody else went out riding. And so they, they were going, they said, they told me they were going to sell him. And I said, oh, well, before you sell him, why don't you send him to me to evaluate? Let me see what's going on with him. And so they sent him to my barn. And I, because I board, I, I don't, I, I've never run a training barn where people, you know, where I have horses in training. But there was a, an open spot available, and he could come to the barn for a short while. And the first time I rode him, he just felt 
incredibly flat, like he had four flat tires. And, and I just thought there's something wrong with this horse. So I talked to his, his people and we got a vet out. And that was an interesting visit. This is one of those where I say, you know, when, when there's a problem that you're having with the horse, where you really have to be persistent. And the vet who came out was a new associate in the, in the barn. He didn't know me that well, but we'd, we'd met a couple times doing routine work. And, and I said to him, you know, I don't know what's going on, but Magnet doesn't feel right. And so we did the usual exam. He did flexion tests. Magnet looked okay. He did, he lunged him. I, you know, we walked him back and forth, trotted, did all the things that you normally do in a lameness exam. And Magnet, there was nothing where you could say, ah, I see what's going on. Nothing that you could pin your hat on. But I kept saying to him, but it's something. He, he just feels so flat. And so he kept looking. And just as he was about to say, well, you know, we can pull some, you know, I'll pull some blood work, but, you know, I don't really know what's going on. He went out to his truck and he got his stethoscope, which maybe he should have done at the beginning, but that's not how, it's not, it's not how a lot of equine exams go. But he listened to Magnet's heart and he said, oh, he has a grade four out of five heart murmur. No wonder he was falling out on the trails. No wonder, you know, that he's, because he, and he had also lost an enormous amount of condition. He looked terrible. And, and so I had a long conversation with his people. And uh, we had a, what is it, an echocardiogram done where you could really see this, these growths on Magnet's valves. They looked like little cauliflowers. So you could really see that there was a severe problem. And his people were stuck because they really didn't have the space for a pasture horse. They didn't want to keep a pasture horse, but ethically they couldn't sell him, knowing that he had this heart condition. And, and you know, full marks to them for not, you know, disguising it or putting him on a truck to the, you know, local auction or all these other things, these horrible stories that we hear. And they said, you know, what, what are we going to do with him? And I said, well, I'll take him. You know, the universe works in strange and wonderful ways. I said, I'll take him. You know, the kind of work that I do, he can, we can work in, the, in an arena. We don't have to go up and down hills. The walk is the mother of all gates. Let me, you know, I'll take him. And so Magnet became my school horse. And this was right at the time that I was starting to explore clicker training. And I was sharing clicker training with all of my clients, but I didn't introduce clicker training to Magnet because he was such a pleasant horse. And I thought, well, what if I start using treats and he becomes mouthy? He's not mouthy now, but what if he becomes mouthy? And I love this part of the story because what it, what it tells us is that all those questions that people have when they first encounter clicker training, well, I had them too. You know, and I totally get it when people say, well, you know, if I, I'm going to use treats, am I going to make, teach my horse to bite? And I, I understand those questions because 
been there, asked them, you know, did the same thing. And I had every horse I was working with, all my clients' horses were clicker trained, but magnet. And I finally thought, this is ridiculous. The, the one horse that isn't clicker trained can't be my own school horse. So I introduced him to clicker training. And Magnet went from, Magnet was one of those horses that could have gone his entire life without being clicker trained. And he would have been a pleasant, lovely, nice horse, but an ordinary horse. When we added in clicker training, it was never an issue with the mugging. He was a gentleman before I started clicker training. He was a gentleman as we were clicker training. He was never muggy. And he went from being an ordinary horse to an extraordinary horse. He's a horse that when Anne started, so Anne came to the barn where I boarded and was interested in taking lessons. The owner of the barn mother didn't really like to teach adult riders, so Anne was, was passed to me and Magnet became her teacher. And Anne and Magnet together learned about lateral work and balance. And then they learned, um, we, I taught Magnet the canter in hand so that when Anne was ready to canter, I could work Magnet from the ground and ask him to canter. And you got this gorgeous, just heavenly, beautiful canter where you can, as a rider, you can really relax down your seat because it's just, you don't have to go through what a lot of people who are learning how to canter, you know, it's the horse goes faster, 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 then breaks into a canter and all of those things. And then Magnet and Anne together learned Piaf and Passage. And at some point in their relationship, I looked at the partnership that they were developing and I asked Anne if she would like to have a horse. And so Magnet became her horse. How uh, old is he now? So Magnet lived to be 33. Oh, he's gone. Yes. So we oh. he's one of our early pioneers. And we lost him the uh, year we moved to the new barn. Oh. So, so, that's, so that's Magnet's backstory in terms of how he came into our lives. So Anne, uh, with that as the background... Let me stop talking for a few minutes and let you talk about Magnet. Well, <laughs> when, I, um, when I met you and started taking lessons, I specifically wanted to ride, but I wanted to have a relationship with one or two specific horses. I didn't want to ride a different horse every time because I needed to, because I'm blind, I needed to acquaint myself with the horse so that I could trust uh, their signals and the way they moved, the things they reacted to. I needed to get to know all of those so that I would have a a more secure feeling about what was going on. Had you ridden before, Anne? Or was it your, your first riding horse, Magnet? I rode as a child at a big, actually it was county-owned barn in New Jersey. And they, they had 
troops. You know, it was a very military-based system, but we would go out, you know, you'd start riding by getting on a horse and being in a line of 10 or 20 horses with an instructor at the front and a teenage rider at the back to keep everybody going. And the horses were, uh, you know, long-term experienced school horses. And uh, you'd start out by going around the very large riding ring they had with the instructor usually in the middle of the ring giving instructions. But basically it was just walk, trot, walk, trot. They taught you how to, you know, it was a double reins. So they taught you how to hold the reins, very uh, English style. And, uh, you know, proper posture and heels down, toes up, um, walk, trot, posting trot. You learned all that, stayed in line, and then eventually you could you would go out on trail rides, the whole group, not you know not the same ones every time, and it, it was a lot of different horses, but they were basically all in the system. They stayed in line. You followed you know the horse in front of you, and uh, we would go on trail rides. So you eventually learned to canter up the what they called the ski trail, went through the the reservation that this barn stable was in. So that was my first experience. I started taking lessons when I was 10. I took lessons until I went through high school. And, you know, when I went away to college, I didn't take lessons uh, for a while. Eventually took some lessons when when I was in college at another barn where there were school horses. So I I had mostly good experiences. I didn't fall off um, until... At the, uh, the first barn I was talking about, they, at one time when we were coming back from a trail ride, um, we went past the field that they were setting up for a show on the weekend, and it was a um, hunter horse in this field, and the instructor said, oh, that looks like fun. So he led us in one gate of this field and said, okay, let's go down this side of the field and go over these jumps, which were low, but um, I was scared to death because I couldn't see anything, and I didn't want to go cantering wildly over these jumps, so I held my horse back for a little while, but he got nervous because he was at the end of the line and uh, wanted to keep up with everybody else, so he took off, went over the jumps. I don't remember whether I went over any of the jumps. Actually, I think the first jump uh, that we came to, he entered up to the jump, but then just before going over, he jumped to the right to go around the jump, went past the jump, and I I didn't fall off at that point, but then when he got past the jump, he went back to to the left to get back into the path, uh, was worn in the in the grass, so he jumped back to the left, and at that point I fell off, which meant that I had to bring candy for the whole troop the next week. <laughs> oh, the joys of the horse world. Yes, exactly. Were you hurt badly? No, I wasn't hurt at all. I bounced. Okay. I was young enough, <laughs> but, you know, it was okay, back up on the horse, so, you know, we were you know, right a right, uh, couple hundred yards from the barn, but you have to get back up on that horse and ride back to the barn. You know? So mm. so I did. 
And that didn't stop me from wanting to ride, but it did make me a little more cautious about who I rode with and what horse I rode. So I rode a little bit, as I said, in college and then uh, got busy with uh, my profession and my family, etc. And I didn't go back to riding until my kids were teenagers or pre-teenagers. And I was in my 40s, so that was when I decided seriously I wanted to go back to riding. And that's when I met Alex. So I was a lot more cautious and a lot more, I I knew a lot more about what I wanted from the riding experience, that I didn't just want to get on a horse that was a closed box to me, Mm. a vehicle. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have some insight into the mind of that horse, and I wanted the horse to know me as a person. I wanted to be able to communicate and to be able to relate, you know, to use my body to talk to the horse and for the horse to use its body, his or her body, to communicate with me. So when I started riding with Alex, he was, you know, very good about giving me lots of ways to get to know Magnet, besides doing a lot of work in hand before I wrote him independently. You know, I would be sitting on him, but Alex would be working him in hand so that I could feel what was going on in his body. Now, that, that's, that's one of the great advantages, I think, of the groundwork that we do. So, you know, Magnet been taught the the classical work in hand. So we could ask him to move around me in good balance and to go into lateral work, into shoulder in, etc. And to trot and canter with me walking beside him, that he had all of that as in the ground skills. And it did not matter to me that Anne was blind. Anybody, every rider who came to the barn to learn about the, uh, the way that I teach riding. They all started out with me working the horse from the ground because I didn't think that it was fair to the horse to have riders get on who were not familiar with the horse's communication system. Mm-hmm. And so I always started riders out. It didn't matter if this was a beginner or a really experienced rider. You could be an experienced rider, and that first ride that you would have with me would be a pony ride, so that you were not 100% responsible for all of the communication between the rider and the horse, that you were learning how to communicate through your seat and move with the horse, and then slowly we introduced the communication via the reins, and then when the rider understood the, the full communication system, then I would fade out, they would fade in, and so they became independent riders. And with Anne, uh, we had the added complication of I had never worked with anyone who was blind, and I, I didn't know how to teach someone who was blind, so I just figured I wasn't going to worry about it, that Anne was skilled at knowing how, it's an odd way of putting it, I figured, Anne, you knew how to get around and navigate, and and you knew how to be blind. Right. And so if you were in the arena, I didn't need to tell you 
where the walls were. That was your job to figure that out, that part out. My job was to teach you how to communicate with Magnet and ask him to piaf. And your job and Magnet's job was to figure out where the walls were. And so I left that part to you and to Magnet, and the two of you worked that out beautifully. But the, the beginning part of having a rider up where I'm working from the ground, that would have been the case whether you were sighted or blind. That made no difference. Right. And I, uh, one of the other things that I, I did was I always came for my lessons about an hour early, and I would go out to Magnet's paddock and bring him into the barn and put him in the wash stall and groom him. He was a gray Arabian and lived in a rather muddy paddock, so there was always lots of grooming to be done. And Magnet, thank goodness, loved to be groomed. Well, I heard from a previous conversation that you were one of the best groomers that once a horse, once Magnet was out of your hand, he was spotless. He was yes. impeccable. Yes, he always came into the arena, just this beautiful white horse. He was a, the, the term is he's a flea-bitten gray, which is so not flattering, but he was always, always immaculate. And that's without the shampoo bath. Mm. So it was really impressive how you could start out with a horse who was living in a muddy paddock, and it didn't matter whether he, it was in the wet mud season or the dry mud season, you know, how caked or not he was, he always came, went into the arena white, clean, beautiful. As I say, it was, it was wonderful that he, was, that he enjoyed being groomed. And I just loved touching and feeling his body. He had a very uh, responsive and a very soft feel to his body. Nothing was stiff. Uh, his neck was, you know, a lot of horses that I touched casually, I felt their necks and I would feel that they were board-like, that they were straight and stiff. Magnet's neck was always yielding and bending. And the same thing with his, you know, his shoulder or his hip. He was very pliable. And I just, I just loved the feel of him. So I would, you know, spend a lot of time hurrying him and then brushing and brushing his mane and his tail and his, his legs. He didn't mind having his uh, ears fussed with or any of those things, you know, massaged around the mouth and all of those things. He was, he was perfectly comfortable with it. I had, you know, no hesitation to uh, pick up his feet, to uh, pick out his feet, you know, any of the, all of the things that I uh, wanted to do. He was very cooperative about being saddled and bridled. And even though I, for example, don't bridle a horse the way most people do, because I need to feel where his head is, where his mouth is, and not just, I can't just pick up the bridle and sort of wave it in front of the horse. 
because I don't know exactly where his where his nose is at that time. So, you know, I I would always have my hand basically on the bit with one hand and and on the top of the bridle with the other hand and touch his mouth before he would take, you know, then he would take the bit. But we developed that and by getting to know each other and developing that trust. So all of that was, for me, a very good preparation for riding. And we should mention that by this point, Magnet was uh, fully immersed in the clicker training world. So this communication that was developing between the two of you, that the clicker training was the, the communication system that was being used. Yeah, and then at some point, I don't, we went through, for me, we went through all the steps of the clicker training from starting with targeting and going through all the, the backing and all the other exercises so that I knew what he knew. Yes. And then I also started teaching him tricks, uh, little things that I guess you could call them tricks or you could call them useful behaviors. Such as, for example, what tricks did you show? Retrieving, for example, was one of his favorites and my favorites. So if I, Mm. uh, you know, I started teaching him and and I started doing that when when we were doing targeting with the uh, little, little cones. First, having him just touch it and then having him touch it when it was further away, like down on, you know, at the end of uh, like a a foot away from him and then, you know, a a yard away from him and then down on the ground. And then from that, we got to the point of not just touching the cone, but picking it up and eventually handing it to me. So from that, we got into retrieving other items so that when I was grooming him, and I would get a little too enthusiastic, and the brush would fly out of my hand and land somewhere on the floor. Uh, Magnet would go pick it up and hand it back to me. It was very useful. Because that happens to everyone. We've all lost our brush like that, that it goes flying, Mm -hmm. except our horse usually don't (laughs) retrieve it back. And and Magnet was, he was um, very meticulous in terms of cleaning up the arena before and could ride. So we, we were in an after-school lesson barn, and the kids would drop things. So they'd drop gloves and Kleenex, and they would drop their riding crops, because these were not clicker-trained horses. And Anne would bring Magnet into the arena, and Magnet would basically insist upon, you know, yep. let, go, let go, I have I have a job to do. Turn him loose, he'd go out and <laughs> grab something and bring it back to me sometimes dressage whips or you know something that was out in the middle of the floor so he would uh, dirty kleenex it's a good yeah, thing that's fun yes it's a good thing you're a mother because it's not the first time you've been handed a damp kleenex and uh and and sometimes it would be an extra uh big piece of um uh shavings so we use shavings as the footing and and so when he ran out of other things to retrieve he would bring you uh, some of the, the footing which was <laughs> But at least you knew that when you rode, there was nothing to trip over. That's right. So those were all things that were both relationship building and uh, preparations for riding. And I also learning the cues. I mean, basically, we would use a lot of the same cues 
uh, on the ground when I was just walking him or grooming him to move around in the wash stall. All of those things were corresponding cues from the saddle. Yeah, I, I think that really needs to be highlighted because people often think of riding as something different. And the expression that I have of riding is just groundwork where you get to sit down and groundwork is riding where you get to stand up. So when you're grooming him and you need him to shift over so that you can move around to his other side, the cues that you are using, the ask that you use when you touch him in a particular spot along his side and, and he shifts his, his balance over, those cues carry over into the riding. So it's not, I do, I do this one thing in the wash stall when I'm grooming him, I do something else when I'm leading him, and I do something else yet again when I'm riding him. And so I've got all these different things that I have to teach. It's no, they, they flow one to the other to the other. They're all interconnected. And I think that is really important to highlight. And you, I think more than anybody I know, you made just exquisite use of the grooming prep to prep and warm Magnet up for the ride. So when he went into the arena, he was already uh, warmed up and primed for the riding. Mm -hmm. uh, when I did get on and we were doing the in-hand work, I could feel the shift in his weight and balance without needing to pause it, which yes. meant I didn't a lot of times when I would try to do, have it, you know, to ask him to do something, I would get tense or I would overthink it. So the in-hand work really helped me to feel the start of the movement and the middle of the movement and the follow-through of the movement without having to pause that change. And... That helped me when I was riding on my own, just to think the movement then communicated to Magnet what I wanted him to do. Didn't get me into the habit of forcing the movement. Yes, I think that's one of the one of the things that is a hallmark of our horses is we prep so much on the ground. So with a lot of the horses that I encounter. If they've done any groundwork, it might have been lunging. And mm -hmm. probably for, for a lot of the horses that I've encountered, if they were lunged, they weren't lunged well. You know, the, the lunging was done to get the bucks out, to get the excess energy out, but not necessarily to teach the horse how to carry itself in balance. Because the handlers, that's not how lunging was used. And it's not what the handlers knew how to do. I think we've, over the last 20 years, there's been a huge, huge expansion in, not just in clicker training, but in the general horse world. There's been a huge expansion in our understanding of groundwork. So these days, when you say groundwork, it means more than just lunging. When I was first starting to introduce clicker training, and I said, yes, we're going to do all of this groundwork. Because to me, groundwork meant the classical work in hand. And 
it meant so it meant so much more than oh we're going to lunge the horse and you could do so much uh, it meant the liberty work as well as the in-hand work and and it meant teaching horses about their balance and so when i said groundwork i had this this complex picture in my head of uh, of what groundwork meant but i when i used that word the translation you know, if you could see two little balloons over people's heads. So the, the picture that would have been over my head would have been, this, you know, the, the horse being worked in a classical working hand and shoulder in or being asked to piaf or working at liberty. And the other person would have had in there over there had the bubble of, oh, uh, lunging. And, and so that was one of the uh, challenges of sharing clicker training was to, to really help people to see that there was so much more to groundwork than what many people have been exposed to. So when we are working with the horses on the ground, they are learning how to carry themselves in good balance. And they're learning to carry themselves in a balance that allows them to support the weight of a rider. And so the weight of the rider is not interfering with the horse's way of, of moving, that the horse is well prepared to lift up and carry a rider, and that's important. And that they can move, uh, they can transition from a walk into a balanced trot, into a balanced canter. And so when we get on the horses, we're not having to put the horse into good balance or make the horse move better. And I use those words, you know, make and put deliberately, but in, in, in quotes, what we are able to do is partner with the horse as the horse offers us the balance, the work that he understands from the ground and the connections that we've taught from the ground carry over into the riding. And it, it means that you're not getting into make-it-happen tension that so disrupts a rider's seat and, so, and makes it so much harder for a horse to carry a rider. You can let go of that make-it-happen tension and move more fluidly with the horse. When I did get on and ride Magnet, we did a lot of work at the walk, and that felt good, and we did a lot of the exercises, uh, the single rein exercises, and I think uh, Magnet and I got really good at a lot, a lot of the changes of bend and getting the forward and the backing and the halt, yep. and all of those things that, uh, and the, uh, that we spent a lot of time on the training turns, uh, which felt yes. really good. I mean, it's amazing. A lot of people would have thought this is really boring, you know. So it <laughs> must have been very boring to watch. But it's amazing how beautiful it can feel when everything is right. When you get it, you know, you get the balance so that you get a turn that doesn't feel like uh, going around a turn on a motorcycle. Where you feel like being yeah. thrown outward or whatever, you know that 
feel like you are on the turn, that you are sort of, um, what, drawing a line or painting a line or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what the, the metaphor would be, but in a channel, perhaps, that you feel like that you're, you know, a marble going in a, in a little uh, groove. Yeah, there's there are no forces that are throwing you. Yeah, that you're that off the circle that you're having to resist, or the that lean that horses get when they're falling over their inside shoulder, where you feel like you're falling into the center, like a center of a whirlpool. Yeah, none of that. I really like that image of a marble going in a groove. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, but at first, when you when you first started when you first started into the trot. There was a real struggle because that was still early days and you hadn't yet figured out what we refer to as the three flip three equilibrium. And that's a term that comes from the single rein riding uh, where we, the horse learns how to pick himself up and, and move into the balance that allows them to go around a circle in that beautiful, good balance that doesn't throw you. And so at first, when because when Magnet was out of balance, he would trot like, and I'll, I, I'll say this, I'll say this, he'll trot like a, like you see a lot of Arabians trotting with their noses up in the air, their backs inverted, tail flagging a little bit, stiff, 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 so jarring. They just sort of bounce the teeth right out of your skull, kind of jarring. So when he was out of balance, he was miserable to ride, miserable to sit. Ugh. <laughs> and I was so confused because I, I would think, gosh, when I was ten years old, I could, you know, I could ride a trot. Why can't I ride a trot on this horse? You know, he's a hundred times better than any horse I rode back then. Why can't I ride a trot? And. Uh, you know, forget trying to sit it. I couldn't even post to it. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it really took us a long time. It took me a long time. I'm sure Magnet was wishing somebody else was up there. But uh... <laughs> <laughs> but you had you had to figure out how to first in the walk what the three flip three means mm -hmm. and how to access it and how to access it in the walk, and that's a learning curve. Because it was not something that you would have learned anything about oh. in your previous riding experience. And then you had to learn how to carry that equilibrium up into the trot. And once you did, it was magnet just balanced out underneath you. And then it was this, oh my goodness, I think I've died and gone to heaven trot. Yes. And I remember on some of those rides, you would say, Wow, it just he just feels so great. It couldn't possibly feel any better than this. And then the next week you would be saying, Wow, I've never felt anything like this. It can't couldn't possibly feel any better than this. And and every week it would be like that. He would just as he became as the two of you yeah. came together in more and more balanced and he got stronger and you more connected, the trot just became so glorious. Yes, and you would always ask Okay, yeah. what should we call this trot? You know, should we call it the <laughs> the balloon trot or the 
uh, magic carpet ride trots, or <laughs> we yeah. think of uh, a new name for each new feel. It was just amazing and wonderful. What would you say was a breakthrough for you to access the magic carpet trot? Uh, or I'm sure there were more than one. I'm sure there were many, but do you remember some of them? Or one of them, perhaps? The hip shoulder shoulder exercise, I think, was one of the linchpins for me. Um, the other one was the, you know, the shoulder in exercises and the, uh, call it the hip in exercises. The haunches in. Yeah, the haunches in exercise, um, which Magnet did so well. I just love the way he was so adjustable, so movable. You know? <laughs> so how could you feel it when you were, let's say, standing at his shoulder and he was doing a perfect haunches in? Well, I was just now talking about the riding, riding those changes. Ah, okay, okay, but, okay. Right, right, right. Did you work in hand on the ground with him on those exercises? Yes, I did a lot of uh, in hand uh, work with him. And also, you know, at the beginning, I did a lot of in hand work where I was on the horse and, and Alex was doing the uh, cueing. The other thing that really helped me get the feel of Magnet was cantering. I was able to ride him at a canter way before I could ride him at a trot. And because he so readily picked himself up and gave me the feel of riding the hindquarters in the canter, that helped me to transfer that feeling to the trot. Yeah, I think teaching him to canter in hand was a big piece from a school horse perspective where he was literally worth his weight in gold because I, when you think about how most of us first experience the canter, it can be a unsettling experience. You know, you're, you're, you don't have the feel of the canter in your body yet, and you're told, to, you're told what to do, and it doesn't work, and the horse just trots faster, 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 until finally he breaks into a canter, but it's not a balanced canter, and oh my goodness, there's a corner. And I have to go around the corner and, you know, and this horse is going faster or he's falling over his inside shoulder and, you know, and, oh, and then I have to figure out how to stop. And, you know, it, it can be that, um, unsettling. That was never my feeling, uh, my experience with Magnet. No, never. I mean, never. Never. Like, I never, I so, have to learn that because he had already, you know, learned that with you, with the in-hand work or whatever. I don't know how, where he necessarily got it because I didn't come in at the beginning of that. But as far as I was concerned, I could always relax and trust him at the canter. He would either, you know, if I was totally unbalanced and didn't set him up correctly, he would continue walking or stop, you know, and back up. But never felt out of control mm. so I could relax just enjoy that canter and that really helped me to be able to enjoy you know and try to reproduce that feeling and go into the trot and that that was what eventually unlocked the trot for me and also getting him really balanced 
so that he was on the bit, you know, with a loopy rein, that it wasn't the rein that was holding him in balance, that it was almost like magic, that having my hands in the right position and his body in the right position, and there was the connection between the hand and the, the bit, but it was more, I don't know, ethereal rather than piece of rope. When you're really connected down a lead or a rein, there's no weight in your hand. You don't, there's no pressure from the, where you're pulling on the horse or the horse is pulling on you. But nor is there an absence. There's not an emptiness. So the rein can be very loose. There can be the belly of the, of the rope, say, if you're leading. But there isn't an absence. So when you pick up a horse who is brand new to all of this work, who's, who's not used to communicating down a lead, and when the lead is slack, there's nobody at home on the other end. I'm sure, Dominique, you've had that experience when you've led some of the horses that you pick up the lead and there's, there isn't a feeling of, of an answer coming back. There isn't a feeling of connection or, you know, if you think about somebody holding your hand. They can hold your hand with a death grip where you're thinking, please don't squeeze any harder. You're going to break my, my, the bones in my hand. Or they can just be. Or you can walk side by side and you feel connected to that person or that other individual. And with the horses, when they are worked well, whether it's a lead on the ground or a rein, there is somebody at home. And so when you pick up the, the rein, you don't have to take all the slack out and you don't have to put pressure on the horse's mouth. You just, you pick up the rein and just a tiny bit and the horse is alive with energy in your hand. And you feel when you pick up the buckle of the reins, you feel their, their hindquarters connecting to your hand as you pick up the buckle. You feel a change in their pelvis as they prepare for, for movement. And it's a lovely, glorious feel. And you can, if you want to look like you are, in quotes, riding on contact, you can shorten the reins so that there isn't that, that loop or you can let the reins out longer and the horse will adjust the length of his body in accordance with what your seat is asking, but not because you're holding the, the reins tight to make him shorten his neck. It's more in accordance with what your seat is asking so that it's a reflection of what he's doing in his hindquarters, in his back. And I think that it's such a, a beautiful feel when you have that kind of connection with a horse. And of course, we're not teaching in this podcast, we're not telling people how to get there. You know, like we're saying, well, there's hip, shoulder, shoulder. We just throw those, that term out. And again, that comes from the single rein riding that I teach, uh, that is part of the connection that I teach. And I'll just say a, a quick word without going into a lot of detail on that. And actually, I'll tell, I'll tell a quick story. So years ago, I was giving a clinic out west, and it was in an area where people used their horses, where they rode out, they rode out in the back country. The horses were used to traveling, they were used to going places, they were used to coming into a strange 
arena and people would tie them to the side of the arena and the horses would just stand there and quietly without fussing or fretting. These were horses that were useful, that were functional, which was interesting to work with horses that were not coming into a clinic because the people were struggling to be able to ride them or get along with them. But they, the people who were there were brand new to clicker training. They were all curious about clicker training. They wanted to explore it a little bit. And they were all coming from command-based training. They were all coming from the use of negative reinforcement, escalating pressure. Horse doesn't do what you want, you escalate the pressure. This is what they knew. It was perfectly standard issue horse training is what they knew. So all weekend long, we were working on the groundwork. And because groundwork was, for many of them, a neglected area, they knew how to ride, but they'd done very little groundwork. Which is surprising in a way. It's the norm. It mm -hmm. is absolutely the norm in the horse world. But it's surprising that you wouldn't know how to do everything from the ground first. Yeah, but that's the norm. Before you ever even think of sitting on the horse. I know, but it is the norm. And a lot of people feel safer on top of the horse than they do on the ground because they don't know how to work horses from the ground. And when they're on the ground, they feel vulnerable. You know, here's this big horse who can now plow over the top of them. And that's in part why the whips come out and the, you know, the shanks come out and all the other things come out to say, horse, you will stay out of my space. And so these people were interested in learning something other than that. So all weekend long, we stayed on the ground and we were working on foundation lessons and we were working on saying yes to the horse. We were working on setting things up so that the horse could be successful we were working on avoiding situations where people were correcting horses. So through the whole weekend, nobody corrected a horse. And at the end of the weekend, that was one of the comments that people made. It was just, you know, I've never spent so long in an environment where nobody was yelling. Mm. I mean, that's pretty profound. You know, nobody was yelling. I've never, I've never gone so long without saying no to my horse. I mean, it just was, you know, those, those life-changing comments that I was getting. And there was one person in particular who was a very experienced horse person. And it was clear she had really worked hard through the weekend and not falling back on, you know, hey, horse, do what I'm telling you to do. Hmm. She'd done a really good job. And she her comments were great in terms of, uh, how much she enjoyed this approach. And then at the very end of the clinic, at the, we were packing up, it was a three-day clinic, so it was Monday. We were all getting ready to leave, and she came over to me and she said, is it okay if I ride? And I thought, well, it's your horse. <laughs> the clinic's over. I, you know, it's not up to me to tell you what you can, can and cannot do with your horse. It's never up to me to say what you can and cannot do with your horse. You know, absolutely, if you want to ride, go ride. And it was so fascinating. I watched her lead her horse into the middle of the arena, put her foot in the stirrup, and swing up into the saddle. And as soon as her seat was in the saddle, she was a different person. Mm. You could see all of those old habits a lifetime of make-it-happen habit patterns just came flooding back. And it was very 
informative to me in terms of why I emphasize so the groundwork and we're going to start on the ground because most of the horse people that I work with are riders. You know, yes, I get some people who, who are fairly new to the horse world, but most of the people who come to clinics are riders. And some of them are very experienced riders. And where they have had the most instruction is under saddle. So even if they've worked horses on the ground, where somebody was telling them what to do and where they were building the habit patterns is under saddle. And so if you really want to change how a person thinks so that you can change, you can begin to create that shift into positive reinforcement solutions, begin, it's that old don't fight extinction, change the environment. Mm -hmm. don't yeah. start under saddle mm -hmm. and that when you do ride and this is one of the strengths of the single rein riding is that it's non-habitual for most people most people are not familiar with the riding on the triangle that I teach it's a different way of using reins it's a different way of building the communication system and because it's different the cues are different and it's enough of a change in the environment of riding that people can build new habits instead of falling back into the old traps of, but I have to stop my horse from doing whatever it is that he's about to do. And so the, the single rein riding is a big part of the uh, reintroduction of riding to horses that have been ridden in other ways. And it's a way of reintroducing people to riding. But it also is a way of teaching this, this underlying gymnast, the, the gymnastics that contribute to build, teach beautiful balance to the horses and that create the kind of, of ride where M is just note saying so what do we call this trot <laughs> what do we call it this week i'm going to stop us here that's a great story to think about as you consider your own transition into clicker training what habits of thought did you need to shift if you want to learn more about riding with the clicker visit my website for resources i have the riding book the click that teaches riding with the clicker as well as the DVD lessons that focus specifically on riding. And then, of course, there are the new online clinics. I know with the clinics, many people may want to jump directly into the clinic that is specifically on riding. But I do ask that everyone work systematically through the clinics. I hope one of the takeaways as you listen to Anne is that for me, riding is built around a systematic teaching process that begins on the ground. We are transferring lessons that we introduce first on the ground to riding. And so it makes sense when you look at my work to begin on the ground instead of jumping straight to the ridden work. If you skip too many steps, there will be lessons and details 
that you just may not understand. You know, why am I teaching this lesson in this particular way? Often that is explained within the groundwork, and then it's a simple matter to transfer it to the writing. Next week, we'll continue our conversation with Anne. We'll talk more about the groundwork prep and its relation to writing, and we'll talk directly about writing and some of the ways in which you can apply clicker training. And we'll also talk about just getting on and riding with the clicker. You know, if you have a nice horse who's very rideable, just get on and ride and find those opportunities to click and treat. So until next time, train well and have fun with your horses.